Hey, what's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? This is your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's episode of the podcast, the last one for 2020, is a best-of compilation of highlights from 12 of the most impactful conversations that I've had over the past 12 months. To provide a little context here, I put out 47 episodes of the podcast in 2020, totaling almost 100 hours of conversation, and picking out sound bites from only a dozen of them to highlight here was really freaking hard. I literally have notebooks full of stuff that I've learned from every single guest, and I simply cannot express enough gratitude for all that they've shared with me, and in turn, all of you. In this episode, you'll hear from six women and six men whose stories, experiences, wisdom, and insight really stood out to me. These weren't necessarily the most downloaded episodes, but I promise you that each of these guests will move you in some way by either teaching you something new, providing an important insight, or even getting you to reflect upon and perhaps re-examine some aspect of your own life. If you're a devoted fan of the Morning Shakeout podcast, it's my hope that this second annual Best Of episode serves as a bit of a refresher or maybe a reminder to revisit an old episode or two. For those of you who are newer listeners to the show, welcome. Use this episode as a nudge to check out some of the conversations you may have missed while also letting it serve as a primer for what's to come in 2021. Whether you tune into every episode of the podcast or only listen every once in a while, I just want to say... Thank you. I'm tremendously grateful for your interest and support. I'm a little over three years into this podcast journey, and the impact it's had on my life and many of you who listen regularly is immeasurable. I'm so glad to have all of you along for the ride and sharing in these experiences with me. There's no sponsor for this week's show, but if you'd like to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support, where for as little as a buck a week, you can help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable and also gain access to some exclusive content like The Weekly Rundown, which is my Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, the occasional emergency pod, and other perks that pop up from time to time. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me, and I cannot thank you enough for it. Okay, let's dive right into this one with episode 95. It's with Fernando Cabada, who I visited with earlier this year in his hometown of Fresno, California. This was a deep and at times emotional conversation. We talked about his rough upbringing in Fresno, suffering abuse at the hands of his father, the close relationship he has with his mother, and how that strengthened in recent years. We also spoke about embarrassment and depression, his relationship with running and how it's evolved, and a lot more. What was it about finishing second in that schoolyard race that made you so happy? It was just a feeling. It was just a feeling of kind of being powerful, I guess, in, in some way, kind of because um, I just never knew what that felt like. Anything kind of go my way. So that was the first time in your life that, that you felt f- that way? Very first time. I mean, it it just something I, I just remembered. Yeah, just. And it just opened crazy. your eyes to possibility? I didn't even know how to dream like that big. I, I didn't know what that, I didn't, I never really heard, um, you know how a lot of parents build you up and, or your dad says, hey, son, you could do this or that. You know, I believe in you. You could do anything you set your mind to. I never heard that until maybe my mom would have probably said that. But again, my mom only had limited, <laughs> limited knowledge about anything. You know, she was just trying to make it in her world. And, you know, I can only imagine what she was going through, only knowing so much, going through it with my father. 
I, I couldn't only imagine. And um, so n looking back, uh, back at everything, you know, definitely I have a big respect for my mom and she's actually in town. Uh, she's staying with me for the week. She still is in Denver. Um, and I just want to be around her, you know, and I know one day she will leave me and, you know, she has been my crutch. She has been my protector, especially the last five, six years. Um, I've gotten extremely closer than ever. You know, when I was in college, I would come back. I would just go out with my friends, you know, that's all I cared about. I didn't really care about spending time with mom. And, you know, once I got closer to 30, I just really, you know, gave me time to kind of uh, reflect back when I was younger. And I, I let my mom down a lot, you know. Um, you know, one time, and this is one of many, my mom was getting hit by my father. And um, I just... I was seven years old or so, and I just laid there, uh, paralyzed, pretending I was asleep, and I didn't go and call the cops. I didn't do anything. A lot of times, I didn't, I didn't do anything for my mom, and I couldn't. I was a kid. I was scared. I was, just, I was scared, and uh, and I had on a lot of guilt in my life, and and it affected me. Even when I'd be successful in my running, it affected me, and I felt like I didn't deserve anything, you know. And and I don't know if that's exactly it, but it's something along those lines where I had on a lot of guilt and. And, I, and I've been working through all that and um, in my own little way. But um, now this is uh, this is life. And all I could do is just um, do the best I can. Like, just like do the best I can with the, the hand that, that was dealt to you. But it's, um, it's it's turning around big time for me, though, nowadays, even though all this sad stuff I'm talking about, um, it, it, it gives me even more motivation, more fire. Um, I want to remember this. I want to acknowledge it. I want to know what fuels me. And and and, and I'm giving back my own little way now. Um, here and there, little small battles that I won't get into, but I'm giving back to people who grew up like me. And I, I'm not a hero, man. I mean, I, I'm not in the position where I could just go and lift a uh, city up. All I could do is do little things and, and, and conduct myself in a certain way to where if anyone acknowledges it and sees it, and they could get some type of um, motivation from it, then then that's good. But I'll push back on that a little bit. I don't think a hero needs to be someone who is gonna change the the culture of a right. place or is gonna you know have a widespread impact on a city. You can be a hero to one person. I mean, there's gonna be. I guarantee you, there's at least one person who's gonna listen to this conversation, whether they're here in Fresno or somewhere else, who is gonna relate to your story and be like, "That guy's my hero." Whether they heard of you before or not. That'd be cool. And I, well, I mean, I think that's probably already happened because you've yeah. done other interviews and your story's out there and it's like you're very connected to this place. And obviously people right. know you mm -hmm. from here because this is where you, you grew up and you did a lot of things that, that got you some recognition. And I think, you know, I don't know who, but I'm sure that someone in this area has, has seen like, hey, that guy, Fernand, he grew up in Southeast Fresno. Mm -hmm. You know, he had he had a hard life growing up. And you know, look at what he's done. Like he's right. gone on to win national championships. He's broken records. Like he's been on TV, you know, he's traveled the world. Like I, like if that guy can do it, like I can do it. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a hero. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's the one person. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's kind of what matters. I, um, I sometimes I try to be the person that I've always wanted needed. Um, if I take someone under my wing or I coach them or, um, there's a kid I started, um, kind of mentoring now. He, he, literally grew up he lives at till this day one street over from where i lived in my old neighborhood and um and yeah so you know i don't know it's it's it's, it's fun you know it's just like man you know i could it's like that it was just meant to be 
Um, I'm not so religious, but I believe in God. I believe in, you know, he has a plan for us. I believe that a lot of things that I went through, I felt that I needed to go through to really understand people and to really understand, just be able to help, I guess, in my own little way. And I wish, well, no, I wish I didn't have to go through some of the stuff I went through, but, um, but it, it, it just, if, it, if anyone can handle it, it's me and yeah. I'd love to go back to that time when you were eight, nine years old. You ran that first race at Clovis. You finished second. It's the best you'd ever felt in your life to that point. I, I imagine that's probably like one of the first times that you ever like ran, like right. really, like really went for a run. And right. obviously you've stuck with it since then because that's been, you know, your career. That's kind of what got you an education. That's kind of, you know, what got you to different places in life, was there something about that experience of, of not just winning, but running that felt freeing to you or something that you wanted to continue doing? Or was it just running was that first thing that you showed some promise in and you were like, well, this is this is it. This is what I should be doing with myself. I, I think at this point, I think as a kid who doesn't want to be good at something, I got some recognition. And you know what? I got second. It was only amongst my class. It was like 30 kids, 25 kids. And because you weren't training, that's just a race you just jump into. Yeah, I was just during school P, hours. Yeah, PE. Yeah, um, and in fourth grade, so I was in third grade. In fourth grade, we start running cross country. So you know, Clovis is really good. We got really good athletics, and the thing is, they start us young. So in fourth grade, we start running cross country, which was a K. Uh, it was like yeah, one kilometer was for fourth graders. I think it was a mile for fifth and sixth graders. However, so fourth grade, I started running, and I was always second best on the team, second or third. And, you know, you're just a part of something who doesn't want to be a part of something. I wasn't tough. You know, I wasn't, you know, going to be a gang member or something like that at that age either. Um, I was really soft hearted kid, you know, like I got abused a lot. And so I, I was really afraid of everybody. I was afraid of people. I, you know, I just didn't know I had anxiety, but I always give our time trusting people. Oh, yeah. I was always afraid. I never went to a concert. I would always think, oh, how about if I get stabbed or how about, you know, and so um, I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward now, but I'll come back. But that's why I developed drinking um, when I when I was a freshman in high school and college when I started going to parties. I didn't want to go anywhere unless I was drunk or something like that. So anyways, yeah. So going back, um, I, uh, yeah, um, running is just something that calmed me down. It made me feel invincible. It, it was like I was like a Superman. Um it's kind of been the one constant for that's you only, since that's you've only, been eight, nine years old. That and your mom. The only thing that's been consistent in my life, um, and that's is running. And that's, you know, when I started, you know, because I coach as well. And, you know, when I was starting uh, my coaching business about four and a half years ago, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to, no one to rely on me. Like, I can't promise anything. But then I was like, well, you know, running is something that I know and I'm just really good at. And, you know. Now I got like people who are like with me for over three years, even some people with me from the beginning, almost five years now. Um, and so that's pretty cool. But yeah, running is something that just always, well, I was always good at and something that I would do no matter what. It was always my little escape in some way. Um, whatever was happening at home, running would just make me feel a little better when I got to go out. It was just my escape and I need it. Um, I need it till this day. Um, it, it, it's the only time that I feel that nothing negative could touch me. <laughs> 
Episode 100 was with Laura Schmidt, who coached the cross-country and track teams at Redwood High School in Larkspur, California for 35 years before retiring in 2019. Laura is one of the most passionate, enthusiastic, and successful people that I've ever met, and it really comes out in this 90-minute conversation. In this wide-ranging exchange, we talked about running, community, coaching, family, parenting, and entrepreneurship. All things Laura knows a lot about and has had a lot of success in over the years. I'd love to talk about some of the headlines that have been in the news for the past few months. We've seen the whole Mary Kane, Alberto Salazar thing. Mm -hmm. Most recently, I don't know if you caught the gentleman from Canada, Dave Scott Thomas, who lost his job at Guelph and and what he um, was engaged with with Megan Brown. And there's a lot of discussion now Mm -hmm. about coaching and ethics Mm -hmm. and more females in coaching. I'd love to get Mm -hmm. your perspective on that whole situation and what you see as the major problem in those types of cases. Okay. Well, so more females in coaching is, I believe, a different conversation than bad apples in coaching. I agree. Thank you. I don't think more females, I think more females everywhere, anywhere, fabulous. Yes. But I don't think- That's the solution. Correct. And I've heard and I see people posting things. Here's the solution, checks and balances. I don't think Mm -hmm. having a team where there's a male coach and a female coach, here's the deal, a great male coach. Jake Schmidt is a great, a phenomenal coach. So does he need a female next to him? No. Does a woman who's a great coach, I can coach men. I don't think it's a sex thing. I don't think so either. And I was coached by a female in college who, to this day, best coach that I've there ever worked with and had biggest impact on my life. And I've worked with a lot of different coaches over the years, most right. of them male. Right. Isn't it interesting? I think what needs to happen is, of course, the, the conversation uh, and women feeling comfortable coming out and saying things that happen and realizing that when, when the first stuff started coming out several years ago, there was a couple of things that, tri- that happened to me when I was younger that I didn't even think was worthy of, of it happened, I moved on. So what will happen with this next generation of kids is they'll be more verbal about it. And I think women, little boys and little girls need to be taught their power and need to be taught. And I definitely taught my own children this and my high school girls and my high school boys to when they're doing something, if something isn't comfortable, it doesn't feel comfortable, it isn't. And you also don't need to make the person who's coming at you feel comfortable. Much like if you're having an uncomfortable conversation and you choose to pause and not talk, that's the best strategy in the world. Mm -hmm. The other person has to deal with it. You don't need to deal with it. So I don't have the answer except empower the children coming up. I appreciate that perspective. From a coaching education standpoint, do you think more needs to be done to educate coaches about their responsibilities, about the influence that they have on athletes, not just in high school, um, but kind of throughout the entire process? Because nowadays, like, I don't know how it really works at the high school level. I know the college level, especially as you get in like division one, two, it gets a little more vetted. But beyond that, like, with age group athletes, anyone can be a coach. You set up a website, you, set, you, you, you have an Excel sheet, you can send someone training and say like, I'm, you know, I'm a coach. And I think there are a lot of people who do that because they're like, oh, it's 
I'd rather do that than sit in an office. It's easy money. I've run for 15 years, like whatever, whatever the reasons and don't understand like what it actually means to coach someone. It's not just sending workouts, realizing, you know, the influence that they have on someone's life and how impactful their words can be, how important, how impactful their actions can be. And it's not just about like, Oh, did I get the workout mix? Right. Um, that is phenomenal. Coaching. I would argue is the least about the workouts. In fact, if you're a coach, you should have phenomenal workouts. You should have a progression that takes a, a child, an adult, anyone in four years, of course they're going to get better. You just have to write it out properly. It's written in every book. You can pick up any book. Anyone can be a give workout person. Mm -hmm. What isn't easy, unless it is, is knowing how to connect with a person yeah. to get the most out of them so that they feel good about themselves. So if you're someone who is timid and shy, I'm not going to put you in the front of the workout. I'm not going to put you up on a platform. Rather, I'm going to let you sit in the back. And I'm not going to... I'm also not a fan of the... You have to be very careful about how you connect with people. We as coaches have power for sure. The people we are coaching can be vulnerable. So you have to make sure you're not taking advantage of that mm -hmm. or, or crossing the line. That's your job. It's not the athlete's job. So wherever, as close as the athlete comes to you, you have to know where it needs to stop, mm -hmm. where the line is. And a mature coach knows knows how to do that. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it comes, I say this to people all the time, like the easiest part of my job is writing the workouts every week. And people are like, really? Like that? I'm uh, like, yeah, I don't, I don't stress right, out about that. in your that. sleep. Um, <laughs> but it's like the hard part is like, you know, when you have an injured athlete and yes. they're crushed that they can't run, it's like helping them through that because right. there are a lot of quote unquote coaches and putting it in air coach, uh, air quotes. It's like, oh, the the athletes hurt. Well, I just I won't talk to them till till right. they're healthy again. You realize like that has an impact. Um, and right. it's like it's when other factors outside of the workout might be affecting the athletes running. And it's like understanding right. that and like right. you said, knowing where the line is and all of that. But it's like, that's the challenging part right. is like understanding the person and connecting. And like who they are. Getting that connection with someone, right. especially in a, I mean, when you're in a high school situation, you're seeing the kids every day. And, and I think right. it's a little bit easier when you're meeting frequently. But a lot of these quote unquote coaches today, when most of your athletes are remote, most of mine are, yeah. it's like, Connecting with someone in that yeah. type of situation isn't exactly easy to do. Right. You know, it's funny because when, um, when we started Thoroughbred, we could get some emails from other places. And I was like, you know, Jake, I, I don't know if that's my gig. I don't know. And he agreed. And I mean, I have one-on-ones uh, that they come, they sit down, and it turns into a session of, I have everything planned where I think they're going to go, but I let them open up. Yeah. And we go into a section... Uh, it's mind blowing what's being said and it's and it's going to and they just leave so relieved, so like relaxed, and then they can and then we can translate that to running. But often one on ones we don't even talk not a word about running. And I'm prepared with all the, you know, no, all right, well we're not going there. Yeah. So Nate Jenkins was my college rival and one of the toughest competitors that I've ever met. He was not a big star in college, but after school, he went on to do some pretty amazing things in the sport, like finishing an incredible seventh place at the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in the fall of 2007, running a personal best of 214.56 in that race, and then representing the United States in the marathon at the World Championships in 2009. 
In episode 108, we spoke for nearly two hours about a couple races we ran against one another, but we also got into Nate's relationship with running, training, and competition, and how it's evolved over the years. Nate even turned the tables on me and asked a couple questions he'd been holding on to for a while, and a lot more. That mentality that you described once you got away from Rowatinsky, very Steve Prefontaine-esque of you. Thanks. I just, it, yeah, I, I, I think that sometimes though, like you, you just want to, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to take a beating, you want them to know you were there. But that's, what's amazing is so many people in that same situation, especially when they're dealing with a physical problem that is not allowing them to run properly or how they ordinarily would, would have just folded even at the Olympic trials. I, I would say nine out of 10 people in that same situation would have packed it in and called it a day and said, well, it, it's not worth it. But somehow you found it within you. And, and again, this is what I was saying earlier about, about your mind to still quote unquote hobble through a last 33 minute 10 K at the trials to place you in seventh. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a mental battle. Um, and I'm not going to claim that I'm always like that. I've dropped out of races. I've quit. Um, but like I said, that particular cycle, I had put myself in the place. And I think you more than many people can really understand this because you came from very much the same place. You got a little talent, you're a good hardworking guy, but you were not a superstar. You didn't go to foot lockers. You, you, you didn't set records and, and all that. You're a division two athlete coming from that place and finding yourself. And it's not like you woke up one day, but basically you wake up one day and you've turned this corner and you are capable of beating the people you read about. You are capable of taking whatever they got and still being there. Now, they may, they may get the best of you, but you can take it. You can stand toe-to-toe with them. Is an awesome thing. It's just an awesome thing and a huge motivator. And it's a huge gift. And when you get it a little later in life, you can't help but know it's a gift versus if if you or I were a footlocker champion in high school, you expect that. You think that's who I am and you don't necessarily have – some people do, but I know I wouldn't have had the same appreciation for it versus I knew how lucky I was and I was not going to give that up. And that that builds this mentality that you know I'm going to give absolutely every last ounce for this. Um, and I – you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm whining about – you know, how I, I lost this coordination and this is the end of my career and all this. But I had, I was afforded some amazing, amazing experiences. Um, and I, yeah, I, I consider myself honestly like one of the absolute luckiest human beings on the planet um, for that gift, for, for what running gave me and the opportunities and the people I got to be and the people I got to almost be and the people I got to, to go to war with. Um, yeah, so... But yeah, I think that that being very thankful for it is is a huge part of it. Um, Pete Rose um, was a crazy ball player, and I think we've talked about him before, um, and banned and everything else. But there's this story that at the Game Six of the World Series, Reds versus the Red Sox, um, that as they're going into extra innings, Pete Rose comes up to bat and he's talking to Carlton Fisk, the catcher for the Red Sox. And Carlton Fisk is tired; he's caught every game of the playoffs; he's beat up. He's had enough. And he said, he's just trying to get this game over with. And um, 
He said, Pete Rose is having this incredibly long at bat. He just keeps following off pitches as only Pete Rose could. You know, he's waiting for the pitch he wants. And so he's like literally purposely following these off. And between each pitch, he's going, Fisky, this is amazing. Can you believe it? We're in the World Series. This is like the biggest thing on the on the planet. Everybody's watching. Like when you were a little kid, this is what you wanted. And he said, at first, he's just getting pissed off at him. And by the end of the at bat, he's as fired up as Rose. He's like, oh my God, this is true. This is everything I ever wanted. And it's really happening right now. And then he takes that motivation and he hits a game-winning home run in the next half inning. I was in the Pete Rose position. I honestly was, I'm hobbling in. And with each mile that went by, I'm like, I'm still in the top 10. That's Uta Pippig who's cheering on the side of the road over there. You know, like I just passed a hobbled Abdi Abdurrahman. He's a 208 marathoner, you know, and I'm, that guy up in front of me is Meb Kaflesky. And I remember catching Meb with 800 meters to go and Meb went right back by me. And I had a moment of like, oh, the dream was too much, you know? And then I said, no, like you're going to hobble back by him because this is the home stretch of the Olympic trials and he's the reigning Olympic silver medalist. And that's the sort of thing you pray for when you're a kid, like to go back and forth with the Olympic silver medalist in the home stretch of the Olympic trials. What more could you want? Um, and so I think that was a big part of it is just that perspective. Episode 109 was another special one for me with Mike Smith, who is the director of cross country and track and field at Northern Arizona University, where his men's cross country team won three straight national titles from 2016 through 2018. I've been looking up to Mike since the mid-1990s when we were both running as high schoolers in small-town central Massachusetts. This is a conversation about the path Mike's followed to get where he is today and who and what have influenced him along the way. It's also a conversation about his approach to coaching, running, competition, and life that I personally took a lot away from, and I know you will too. If you had to go back, would you do anything differently? You know, it, it ultimately, um, it's like, like anything. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I tried to not play that game in my mind because there's so many, there's so many things that are, um, there's so many things that are, it's a second here or a second there, or, uh, you know, you know, a decision here or there. And, you know, I, my whole life is, uh, just the product of, really minute circumstances. And, and so, you know, ultimately I, I, I'm so happy and I'm so fortunate and I have so much gratitude for my life that I wouldn't change it. But, um, I, I, I think, um, I think a great lesson for me in the time was just, you know, again, what looked a certain way on paper and what should be, what this should make, you know, you happy. This should be the best situation for an athlete. This is everything you'd imagine it to be. You're going to have all these resources, all these training partners and all these things, you know, to peel the layers back and to actually look at, you know, what you need for success. I think that was a great, a great takeaway from that. How are you thinking about your life direction when you were wrapping up your time at Georgetown? You're an All-American there in cross country, had pretty successful collegiate career, but you were a national champion. You weren't knocking it out of the park. Did you know you wanted to continue with the sport or were you looking at some other avenues at that point? Probably the process that had happened when I started running in high school that kind of, you know, built up all the way through college was I was, um, I was very outcome oriented. It was all about qualifying for something, all about running a certain time. It was, 
you know, it was all about this, uh, you know, these, the status I could achieve. And that was the way I, I, that was the way I created goals. And I, I neglected the, the pride that should have been emerging from a really vulnerable, beautiful process that I was taking on of just, um, yeah, just trying to be my best each day and, and structure a life around that and bring people, uh, you know, with me to also be at their best. And I wasn't, I wasn't reaping any of the joy from that. I wasn't, I wasn't taking all the good stuff that was right in front of me to just, yeah, to, it was all about, yeah, it was all about these outcome oriented, you know, once I could finally get here, then it's worth it. And you just can't, you can't stand on starting lines needing the race to validate everything that you're doing. And so after, you know, after lots of frustration in that in college, again, so thankful I went through that because I can smell that out in, in an athlete now in two seconds. And I totally relate to it. Uh, but, you know, I just was making so many mistakes of, um, you know, the way I was framing things. So this stuff was happening way before I'd, I'd go compete. And um, it's a way that I'm able to see it now. But geez, super frustrating at the time. What that led to was some, you know, some sporadic success. We were seventh as a team in cross country, um, uh, my junior year. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it never did on the, you know, never ran on the track. Like I imagined I, I could, but, um, again, I, I look back at that and realize, shoot, I, you know, I was doing a lot of that wrong and without, without knowing it. So I think what emerged at the time was just by the end, I really needed a I really needed a big break. I needed to take a big step away from big step away from running. And, um, yeah. And so I graduated from Georgetown and, um, and got to do some traveling immediately after college and really just like for the first time since I'd started running, just, you know, put that thing down and, and just see who, who was standing there outside of the sport. Was that a tough time for you to go through that experience? It was such a relieving time. Um, it was like, it, it really showed me how I'd been living with the sport, which was just that, you know, chasing, chasing these uh, achievements. And that's just a hollow way to hold an identity. And, and um, you know, it, it was proportionate to the relief I felt when I paused <laughs> was you know, that was also the way I was treating myself and the way I was treating the sport and just, you know, it was not a, it was not a good thing. And, and yeah, I had, I had stalled some development personally as I had poured myself into the athlete. And that's, again, when I, when I work with young people, I'm on the lookout, <laughs> I'm on the lookout for that. And in some of the ways that were, we challenge them, they appear to have nothing to do with athletics, but they actually have everything to do with athletics. And I, I think that, um, at the time that was just, uh, that was just where I was. And so, you know, actually it wasn't a challenging time. It was such a relief. I, you know, went and traveled around different places in the world and, you know, maybe went for a jog if I felt like it, but for once I just wasn't living under that, you know, that immense pressure I was putting on myself. How long did you stay away from it? Not long, not as long as I, I should have. And that was, um, again, out of, uh, you know, so much of identity tied to it. And so, um, you know, ultimately I, I probably needed to, you know, step away for, for a lot longer, but yeah, I, I, even the first year out of college, you know, um, 
kind of got back into some training and, and things like that. And, and, you know, really saw like what I was feeling right at the end, which is, you know, you need to, we need to go do some other things and pursue some other stuff. And so I, um, I ended up teaching, uh, teaching school for a couple of years in, uh, in, in uh, inner city public DC, uh, elementary school, um, which was like everything I needed to take my mind off of <laughs> distance running. It was great. Like, let me take care of all these other people and, you know, that are just focused on survival. So it was a wonderful relief. Did you have any connection at all to the sport at that time, other than maybe friends that you had made through it, or were you just fully focused on working with those kids in the schools in DC? Yeah, I had, had, uh, you know, I had friends, um, you know, that, that still ran and, um, you know, my Georgetown uh, teammate, Chris Lukesic was running professionally. So kind of, you know, would keep tabs on, on things. I still lived in DC, so would follow the Georgetown team and, you know, friends with old teammates, things like that. But, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was just as a fan of the sport and, and not really anything more than that. You know, I, I, yeah, nothing, nothing more than that. And, but also just, I mean, that's one of the best things I think, um, you know, you could possibly have is in, in any involvement in this sport or another sport is to step outside of it, mm-hmm. see what we're really, what we're really talking about here, which is it's a sport. That's all it is. And then with that gratitude, drop back into it. Cause you'll, that whole relationship would be completely different. And, um, so at the time that was just the, the blessing delivered to me, which was just to, to, to leave it and, uh, ultimately later be able to jump back into it, but with a whole different perspective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been there myself in a different set of circumstances, but it wasn't until I allowed myself to take that time away that, I could come back to it with that gratitude and appreciation that you talked about and just a new fresh perspective that was a lot healthier than it had been in the past. Yeah. Change, change takes a lot of time, but changing how you see something can be instantaneous. Just looking at the same thing you've seen over and over again, right? Just from a different perspective. I I mean, can change everything around you just like that. It's, you know, so we're recording this, uh, in, uh, April of 2020 and, um, you know, with this pandemic occurring and, and it's my hope that in this really challenging time, that's one of the best things that can emerge, um, you know, for the athletes I coach is that I don't know when, but we're going to return to this thing. And I'm hoping that, um, yeah, what they're going to take from this is just to see it totally different. <laughs> Mary Kane, my guest in episode 114, is the youngest American athlete ever to represent the United States at the World Championships, which she did in 2013 as a 17-year-old high school phenom, finishing 10th in the 1500 meter final. In this conversation, which got emotional at times, we talked about Mary the person versus Mary the runner and when that flipped for her what she experienced during her time as a member of the Nike Oregon Project, and being self-critical and feeling helpless when she was told she needed to lose weight to run faster. She also told me when she realized the environment at the Oregon Project was a problem and why it took her so long to realize it and leave, if her training partners and teammates at the time showed any concern for her while she was suffering, how she's thinking about her running goals in the next few years, and a lot more. My only like thought about releasing my story and this wasn't a fear this was just like how I assumed it was going to go was you know half the people would be very positive half the people would be very negative and it would just be a very small number of people (laughs) who saw this and who read this and who um cared and 
maybe it would only be the track world. But that wasn't because I didn't think this was systemic. It was just because I thought, you know, we might not be ready to address these issues. And, you know, the shining a light on them might have kind of turned people away versus drawn people to it. Um, And it was like on the positive side, I, I felt, you know, the reaction was just so, um, positive that I've, I felt people were ready. Well, kudos to you for your bravery and in, in sharing your story. And especially when you do so in a platform or on a platform like the New York Times, and it reaches a very wide audience, the effect can be really powerful. And I think it highlights the importance of storytelling. I mean, on a, on a much lesser level, when I first shared my story, it was in a very like little red blog post. And eventually it got to bigger platforms and reach more people. But you end up hearing from folks who are like, I see a lot of myself in your story. Thank you for sharing it. I thought it was just me, you know, so on and, and so forth. And and I think just given like your, you know, level of recognition and then the platform that you share the story on, it reaches so many people who are able to identify with some aspect of your story and it helps them to get through their own struggles. Yeah, and I mean, the number of people who afterwards messaged me was just overwhelming. And to anybody I didn't get back to, I'm (laughs) I'm really sorry. Like I, you know, I just, I feel so bad that I can't almost like hug everybody. And especially now there's, there's really no hugging happening. (laughs) And I want to be able to send that to people. But, you know, it really, I think, a lot of the topics that I discussed in the New York Times, I was still like early on in my own healing process for because it had only been like six weeks or two months of me like accepting it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, already accepted the fact that I had, you know, a disordered eating past and had already been really working my way through that and then much, much, much better place with food. Um, and you know, I hadn't cut in a long time. And so it's not to say that I wasn't kind of on the outside, um, like really well on my way, if not out of the woods with those issues. But I I think internally having that just resounding support and love sent my way almost made me realize how much I was still holding onto a darkness Mm -hmm. And so I, I do thank everybody who sent their support and sent their love because it really, it really did help me. And, you know, I just, I want to send that all back to everybody as well. When you were in the depths of your struggles, did anyone in your immediate environment, meaning training partners or other associated people reach out to you just to ask if you were okay? Could they sense that you were struggling or was you know, it just business as usual. Um, more the latter. I, I remember after I left um the like we were in a training camp in Park City and right after Oxy I left to go back to New York and two two people sent me a message. Um and I remember being like, Oh wow, like people noticed I left. <laughs> like, wow, thanks. Um, and then later on in the summer, um, like 
I still raced, I still traveled in that 2015 European circuit. Um, and I remember kind of being like, yeah, thanks. And they were like, well, you're not really on the team anymore, are you? And I was like, well, no, I, I still am. I'm just, you know, trying to like work through some things. And then those same people just ghosted me when I would reach out after that. And I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know, did I somehow, did it get around why I left? And then there was concern being associated with me. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it was really, I was very much alone when I was there and I was very much alone after, um, and people who I thought were my friends, I realized weren't. Um, and since the piece coming out, uh, two of my, uh, past teammates reached out to me and just really like meaningful and ways I can never thank them enough for, um, one was Dathan, who had never overlapped with me during like the 2014 year. He retired, or he didn't retire, sorry, he retired recently, um, but he had left the program um, before like World Juniors or anything like that. So he never witnessed it, but just the messages he sent me just were like, <laughs> I don't want to cry, but like, <laughs> the teammates I think I thought I was going to have. Um, and Cam Levins had also uh, just reached out and just said he was sorry because he was the only one who said he thought. <laughs> wow, I haven't cried about this in a while. I'm sorry for getting emotional. Don't apologize. Um, but I think for me, it was just... I remember talking to Lindsey Krauss before the story came out. And even though, he, you know, if you're working with the New York Times, you can't just <laughs> show up and like make accusations and have zero like reporting on the back end. Right. So even though I had documentation and we had um, previous athletes from the program step up and share similar experiences, uh, you know, she Lindsay really was trying to see if there was anybody on the program at the time who might like say they saw it. And I just kept telling her there is nobody who's going to do that. There's just nobody. Um, and I know she reached out to at least one person who like said all of it was a lie. And that was, that was really hard to hear. Um, and the fact that Cam afterwards really stepped in and did something that honestly I think was braver than what I did. Um, I will just never be able to thank him enough for like seeing me and, you know, just giving a little bit of extra, um, I, I think strength to me during a time, like looking back and knowing that I did have, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I did have one friend there. Um, and I think both of those guys are just people who all, they'll always mean something in my heart and, you know, always be a reminder of what a teammate really could and should be because it's not always about doing the right thing in the moment. Um, and of course we as people always strive to do that, but being able to be there for people um, and step in and admit that you've made mistakes, I think is, 
you know, sometimes as brave and if not harder to do. So I didn't expect to be crying like that, but I I think there's just something, um, you know, maybe about not talking about it in a little while where you're just, you know, it kind of hits you a little bit harder just thinking of those two. Episode 115 was a long conversation with a woman who has had the biggest impact on my life outside of my own parents and grandparents, Karen Bowen, who was my coach at Stonehill College from 2000 to 2004. A lot of how I think about training, coaching, and life in general is due to her influence, and it was really special to learn more about her life growing up in the projects of South Boston with a single mom and two brothers, how she got into running, accidentally falling into collegiate coaching at the age of 40, taking an unknown Division II team that was on the brink of extinction and developing it into a nationally ranked program, and a lot more. Well, let's dig into that. You were working in cardiology. You had a great job at that point. I believe all your kids had been born by that point. What was the initial conversation and who was it with that brought you to Stonehill College to help out with the women's cross-country team in 1997? Well, I was uh, 40 and I did a lot of my, I started a lot of my runs at Stonehill because Morton Hospital is in Taunton and I lived in Stoughton. So Stonehill was along the way and they had lights. So in the darkness, I could still run there. Um, my brother-in-law, Patrick, was a baseball. He, he played baseball and basketball at Stonehill and was uh, currently the, it wasn't still as the baseball coach there. So um, needless to say, we went to watch Pat play ball there. My husband, Carl, uh, worked a lot of the basketball camp, so he knew all the staff, and he knew uh, the athletic director, the new athletic director at the time. She was the basketball coach at Stonehill, and then turned athletic director Paula Sullivan, uh, first female mentor that I had as as a boss. Um, and evidently, she had a neighbor who had a daughter who was a very good runner, and said to Paula, "I'd like her to go to Stonehill. How's the program?" And Paula was affected by that because she knew the program wasn't any good. So she said, if I'm going to be an athletic director and offer a program, I'm going to offer a real collegiate program. So she said, therefore, we're dropping track and field um, because it's not a successful program. So they called, Pat called me and said, um, you know, would you be interested in covering the basis for the year, they're dropping the program. They're going to turn into a club, but they need someone to finish out the year. Um, and I think the only reason he did that is because I was running. <laughs> I was, you know, he was the only person that would probably do it. And I, he didn't even ask me, to be honest with you, Mario. He asked Carl. Him and Carl were talking on the phone. I could hear Carl saying, sure, she'll do it. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, they need somebody else. They need somebody to help out down in Stonehill. They have a few kids who run there, and they don't have a coach. And I told them that you'd be interested. So that's how it started. Um, that's such a Carl move. <laughs> such a Carl move. And uh, so they said, um, get through track. And that was supposed to be the end of it. So they gave me $2,000. And um, 
We had seven seven women on the team. (laughs) And every one of them, of course, as luck would have, it was a different event. So I was coaching the shot put. I was coaching the hurdles. But I went to this sports camp and I did all those events. You know what I mean? So I I did them for six years because you had to you couldn't pick an event there. You had to do every event. And um, so I know enough to get them through it. Um, And then the following year, they asked me if I would take over cross country which I said yes, because I kind of enjoyed it a little bit. Um, and then they asked me, I, they said, well, what did you think about track? You know, what kind of turn into a club? I was like, I think it's a shame. I said, this is a beautiful campus. I just hate to see track and field dropped anywhere. And I said, you really should keep it. And they said, okay, well, we'll consider it if you'll do it. Um, and I really didn't want to coach track and field. I just wanted to coach cross country, but I knew that cross country would be terrible without track and field in the other part of the year. So I agreed to it. Um, Still got the $2,400. They didn't get a raise. Um, And that's how it all started. And to chime in here, Stonehill College at the time did not even have a track on campus. So it would have been a very easy cut to get rid of that program because there was no actual footprint. (laughs) <laughs> and we weren't allowed to use the indoor track because that was for recreation only. <laughs> it was a garbage indoor track anyway. It was handy in the wintertime, but I swear more people got injured on that than anything it's, else. It's not any better now. <laughs> so fast forward a little bit. Now you're coaching year round, at least the women's program at Stonehill. I imagine you're still working in cardiology because $5,000 yeah, a year. Well, oh, for the whole year. Okay, so that's definitely not gonna. That's not gonna do it. Um, where does it go from there? Do you start thinking about recruiting and bringing in some better athletes and really building this program? Because you, you can't really have a competitive track team with seven people. Right. Um, cross country had about seven women, um, but it, I remember there were twins, and I remember. One of them telling me she hated to run, and the other one telling me someone. One of the kids told me she had underdeveloped airways, and I said, "Well, do you have asthma?" She's like, "No, underdeveloped airways." And then another one told me that she faints when her heart rate goes high. So I was like, "Oh my goodness, what's going on here?" Um, anyway, we ended the year with five. Then I went up to the admissions office, and when people apply to college, they fill out—you know—they have a code if they did a sport and then another code, if they did a specific sport. So I got all the persons with the code that had track in it. And I wrote a letter and I found out their post office box numbers. And I put a letter in every one of their post office boxes um, to come by and sign up for track, like a high school program. And I sat at a little table and uh, some kids came by and signed up. And anytime I saw anybody run across campus, I would kind of pull over. They used to joke that, that I was the Stonehill stalker. Um, I would pull them over and, you know, hug me not running, hug me not running. Um, so that's how it really started. And um, the first real recruit I brought in was Laura Trell. And I remember calling her, and you know, all the time. And she said, well, what's the team like? I'm like, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I remember just being honest with her and just saying, but it could be good if you really want to go here. You know, I'll, I'll, I promise you, I'll, I'll do everything I can to make you good. But that was a spark that the program needed because 
it wasn't more than a year or two later that you guys were competitive, at least at the conference level, I believe. Yeah, and the conference was, you know, no disrespect intended, but, you know, it wasn't, the men's conference was fairly strong, I thought. The women's conference was okay. They had good individuals along the way. Um, and we, we put together some really good teams then, Mario, when you look back at, at the talent that we had, right, um, on that women's team was was really something um but they made each other better you know i think the the thing i brought to the table is i i had the background in exercise science but i, I probably am a better motivator than i am than a coach i don't know if one is, is is the same but um we really bought in and i really bought in like i really believed that we could be good i really truly believed that and i i got them to believe it in fact, when we hosted our first ND10 championship, we had this snow squall come across the field. It was freezing. It was like blowing sideways. And I remember bringing the women into the sports complex. And I said, everybody be quiet. I said, just listen to all the people that are complaining about the weather. And we're all listening. And I said, I'm gonna mar- you're going to march out that door and you're going to beat every one of those women that has been complaining about the weather because this is our campus. And we just like pounded our chests and walked out there and we won. Um, but I just remember loving it and believing in it and just wanted people to believe in me. And so to see it grow like that, it, it, it's like raising a child. <laughs> it was just so gratifying. Faith Briggs, a runner, documentary filmmaker, and advocate currently based in Portland, Oregon, was my guest in episode 120, and we had an incredible conversation that opened my eyes to a lot of things I previously wasn't paying close attention to. We talked about the mix of excitement and trepidation Faith was feeling midway through 2020, working through some of the confusion she was experiencing, and why representation in media is more important now than ever. She also told me about the appeal of the mountains, trails, and ultras to someone who ran the 400 meters in college, redefining conservationist, her love of words, language, and storytelling, and a lot more. So, you know, when I, that's what I mean when I'm saying representation. It's like, who do we get to see? And therefore, like, who do we get to believe in? Um, not only just to, like, understand people better, but I think to understand for younger kids, especially like how they get to travel through the world and what their potentials could be. It's, it's a lot harder to imagine yourself being something if you've never seen anyone that looks like you doing it. Um, and we internalize these images um, of who gets to be a surfer and who doesn't, you know, or who gets to be a marathoner and who doesn't, um, or who gets to be, you know, whatever, a politician and who doesn't. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean when I say representation. Well, thank you. I appreciate you explaining that. When did your interest in representation really come to be? That's a hard question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm biracial. My dad's black, my mom's white. And I think pretty early on through, I'm the youngest of three kids. And by the time I was born, my parents were like, all right, we need to give her books about biracial kids. Like my favorite book growing up was um, uh, called Black is Brown is Tan um, by Arnold Adolph. But, you know, that was because my sister was having these racist um, experiences um, as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old. Um, so I think, you know, it was always a part of the conversation happening in my home. Um, and I've always been really interested in people. I was, you know, Spike Lee was my favorite director 
growing up. And when I went to high school, I, I transferred after my freshman year into a boarding school um, called Hotchkiss. And I don't know why my professors, like my teachers were so supportive of me, but one allowed me to like have my English class watch Bamboozled, um, you know, and kids were like leaving their room crying. They were like so upset about this, this film. And, um, you know, that was, I was still like 16 at the time. So when I got to college, I thought I was going to study archaeology or, or not. No, it wasn't. It was um, anthropology. I wanted to be an anthropology major. I'd never heard of sociology, um, which is probably what I would have been doing. But I, I took one film class. Um, it was like spring of my freshman year and I was pretty much hooked then. And I think that's probably when I started referring to that interest as representation. <laughs> Man Oh Man, episode 124 with Mike Rouse was something else. It's the longest conversation I've ever had for the podcast, checking in at over two hours, which if you know Mike, who has completed 261 marathons, 34 50K races, 79 races that were over 50 miles but less than 100, 4,100 milers and or 24-hour runs, 12 Ironmans and 6 Ultramans, that probably comes as no surprise. Mike, who is a dear, dear friend of mine, is 67 years old and started running in the mid-1980s while he was in prison, where he served 14 months of a five-year sentence for possessing cocaine with an intent to sell. That experience behind bars changed his life for the better and led him down a path of running and giving back to the communities and causes that mean so much to him. You're an example of someone who served his time and since you've gotten out have been able to reform your life. But as you've alluded to in this conversation, there is definitely a stigma involved with ex-convicts who are now out in the world. What do you say to anyone who is listening to this and listening to your story, but just can't like shake the fact that, you know, you had to do time and that there are several other people who have followed, you know, similar paths and they have, you know, served time for their transgressions, but they are able to reform themselves and exist as a functioning and contributing member to society. Well, you know, when I was director of Exodus, I, I, I went around two or three times a week, uh, usually at night, uh, speaking to different uh, churches or foundations or uh, I wouldn't say social clubs, but, you know, Lions Club, Rotary Clubs, that kind of thing, trying to raise money for these organizations. And the one thing that I would always stress uh, to anyone that was listening to me was that you know, we can say that, you know, that person doesn't deserve a second chance. They made a mistake. They broke, they committed a crime. They broke the law. They've been incarcerated. Now we're supposed to try to help them. But my response to that typically was, or my admonition to them was, 98% of the men or women who go to prison, 98% will parole out. I mean, we hear about life without parole all the time. But 98% of the people who go to prison will someday parole out. So do you want to be somebody who sits on the, on the sideline and says, you know what, they better do the right thing or else? Or do you want to help them? If they're going to come out anyway, are they better off trying to make it on their own? Or are they better off getting support from society? Because let's face it, uh, once you're paroled out from prison and they hand you a $200 check and say, good luck, how long is $200 going to last? We all know that doesn't last very long. 
that's a few meals and and a couple of tanks of gas and and you you're pretty much done. So if we don't help them find jobs and get their life back together and become functioning adults and uh, fun- functioning citizens of our cities, uh, we're we're setting ourselves up for failure as as a society. Uh, and so you know these guys and gals are going to be living in our neighborhoods whether we like it or not. So let's help them out and make them productive citizens again. Because um, I can I can assure you when they're paroled out and that two hundred dollars is gone, that old drug dealer that they used to know is more than willing to give them money to to do a drug deal. Uh, you know, be, be a carrier, be a mule as as they call it. Uh, an, another guy may be willing to give him fifty percent of doing a, a robbery at a Seven Eleven or or something. You know, people are willing to help them out financially if it aids them as well. So they, we don't want them doing that. We want them to become productive citizens of society. And so we as citizens need to do something, developing programs to help these guys when they come out of prison. Did you ever have any fear that you would regress or fall into your old bad habits? Uh, I did not. Uh, because I, kind of going back to my family, uh, Mario, and seeing the pain and suffering and agony that I put upon my mom and dad, I will never forget uh, on January the 2nd, 1986, when I was leaving the house, my mom and dad's house, to go to, my dad and, and brother-in-law were driving me to the prison to, you know, self-report. Uh, I was allowed that opportunity. As I came out of the house and got into the car and as we backed out of the driveway, my mom was hysterical, standing in the garage, watching us drive away. And she collapsed onto the, the floor of the garage, uh, just in, in massive tears. And I'll never forget crying and thinking to myself, my God, what have you done to your mother that you've broken her heart? Uh, I can't do that again. And even though she's been gone for 20 plus years now, uh, that image is plastered in my mind as if it was this morning. And so I, I've, I've never had the desire to use drugs again. I've been drug-free. Uh, since February the 27th of 1984, I've never used another, I've never done another line of cocaine. So it's been 36 years. Um, I, that will never happen again, I can assure you. So I've, I've, I've been able to overcome it. But again, I know a lot of guys that haven't. But part of that's because I had that family that supported me. Uh, I had a college education, uh, you know, to help me in, in this life. Uh, I, I had a resume of, of jobs on my own construction company, how to run a business. So I had a lot of positives that most of these guys don't have, but I, I, I've never had a desire to go back to it. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to help other people who are struggling with their own issues now when you come across them? I certainly do. Um, I, uh, I've said this many, many times. I'm 67 years old. Um, I got busted when I was 33, got out of prison when I was 34. Um, I've spent the first 33 years of my life, Mario, because everything was about Mike Rouse. Everything I did, what kind of great car can I have? How much money can I have in the bank? How big can I, house can I get? Uh, how can I have the prettiest girlfriend? How can I have the most success, the, the best title? You know, uh, how can I have all the the things that society depicts as, as successful. Uh, going to prison put me on a whole other plane and level. 
And I realized that the rest of my life, I wanted to spend giving back because doing that is so much easier than trying to be somebody that you're really not. And so 33 years, basically the first half of my life was all about me. And since I was released from prison on February the 27th of 1987, everything's been about everybody else. Now, I can't say about every decision I've made and every action I've done, but for the most part, uh, my life now is spent trying to give back to other people. Episode 126 with Brenda Martinez, in my opinion, is probably the most underrated episode of the year. Brenda, who captured a silver medal in the 800 meters from the 2013 World Championships, was on the 2016 Olympic team in the 1500 meters and also has a national title to her name. She's one of my favorite people in the sport, and not only is she an incredible athlete, the impact she's had on young kids who have attended her annual running camp and the importance that she places on serving as a role model and giving back to others is exemplary and really stood out to me in this conversation. I want to go back to your childhood here in a bit, but when you were about their age, did you have someone in your life like that that you could go to, or did you wish you had someone in your life like that that you could go to in that way? Uh, I mean, no, I didn't. I mean, all, all I really had was like my teammates and my coaches, you know, and I mean, social media wasn't right. a thing, you know, and um, it was just different back then. And yeah, like, I remember having to wait like every month for like track and field news to come out, you know, in the mail. And that was how we got our information. But yeah, there's athletes where I would look up to, um, if I saw them on TV or them running the marathon, like obviously I'd be in awe, but like, we don't know anything of them just the day they competed. Um, yeah, I, I wish I did, but at the same time, it was like, I feel like I learned a lot about myself, not, you know, going through those struggles as well. And, um, Maybe I wouldn't have never had my camp if I didn't go through that. And, you know, when camp came around for high school, I couldn't afford it. Like my parents had trouble, you know, coming up with like $150 just to come up to Big Bear for like five days, I think. And um, that was asking too much almost, you know, but my coaches were so great and they would find find ways for me to fundraise. And I like looking back, I really think every kid should experience a camp. And that's why I did my camp. And you know, they don't have to pay anything. They just have to write. Um, but yeah, it's, that's kind of how it started. And, um, yeah. Has the experience of camp been more gratifying for you than your own successes as an athlete? Yeah, because I, I, I think over the years I started to realize like it's more than just running. Like there is more to life than just running. And obviously it's a big part of what I do. Um, but I'm starting to realize like, we need to make sure our happiness is intact. And um, yeah, like I, I try to, to make that as part, part of my life. You know, I, I try to stick to my schedule. I try waking up early, try going to bed early and um, just trying to be positive. Like I try not to feel like entitled and um, hopefully I'm like this positive light for these kids. And um, I just want to be a, a good role model more than anything. And I don't want to ever complain or anything like that. So <laughs> Killian Jornet, my guest in episode 129, hardly needs an introduction. He's one of the greatest endurance athletes of all time. In this conversation, we went deep on his relationship with competition and how it's changed over the years and how he thinks about risk now versus when he was a younger athlete. 
We also dissected his propensity towards self-destruction and pushing the boundaries of pain and suffering, experimentation and fear of failure, becoming a climate advocate who is working to protect the environment and the mountains he loves so dearly through his new foundation, and a lot more. In the path to Everest film, I believe it was in 2011, you said that you came to hate your name. The pressure was really getting to you. And it seems like that was a tipping point. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong on that. Was it a, a reckoning for you where you realized something had to change or things were going to spiral out of control pretty quickly? Yeah, it, it, it was a... Uh, a point where I say, okay, yeah, that's, uh, I need to find a better balance because uh, I, I was thinking, okay, I, I wish like uh, my name like was dead and I was like uh, free of that. Uh, but on the other way, like it's, uh, I think it's because the balance wasn't there and I was only seeing the negative things of, uh, of uh, being uh, known uh and then when i found this balance like it's i believe that it's just uh something that it's uh great actually because uh i can use this voice to to raise awareness about other things or like uh talking today with you about uh training it's something that i love uh and uh it was just to find a good balance and i think like that's probably what my mother say about being self-destructive that I go until it breaks. I probably could start to find this balance much before, but I'm just pushing it, pushing it, pushing it until it's too late. And then it's like, okay, or I die or I need to change. And, and it goes up to that point. And yeah, I hope that now all these chapters are like closed and now the balance is here. Fast forward a year from that experience in 2011. In 2012, you were attempting the speed record on Mont Blanc as part of your Summits of My Life project. And you alluded to this earlier, but your friend and climbing partner, Stefan Bras, he fell to his death uh, when the ground gave way underneath his feet. I can't imagine witnessing that or what it was like in any way afterward. But how did that tragic accident affect you? Was that a moment of possible self-destruction that you had to work through? It's, it's always hard. Like I think I, it's always hard to witness death and, and especially um, from a friend like Stefan, he was first an idol. Like uh, I, when I started racing in ski mountaineering, he, he was the man and I, I admire him. And then uh, when I was going to live in the Alps, uh, we were kind of neighbors and we were training together and like he became a mentor and, uh, he, he was kind of inspiring me to go to, to do these mountaineering projects and to do these, uh, steep skiing activities. And, uh, and during one of these activities, like, uh, we were just like, uh, walking side by side, uh, like close to each other and, and just like, uh, the the cornice break between us so there is it's a lot of culpability i say because like you always say why i was in the mountainside and, and he was on the on the wall side and why like uh he's gone uh like uh he had a family like uh i i had not at that moment or 
So you are, I think, you're always culpabilized when an accident happens in the mountains. Um, but then, like, it's it's things that happen, like, it's, it's part of it. Like, it's not that we want, or I don't think nobody goes to mountains to, to face death, but, uh, but we know that it's a possibility and, and, and we try to, to, to escape from it all the time. But on another way, like mountains is giving me and, and uh, everybody goes to mountains so much like emotions and, and for fitness that, that we need to go back. Uh, but yeah, sure. Like for example, after Stefan's death, like, uh, uh I don't like alcohol. I don't like the test, taste of alcohol. I have never drink. I, I, I'm not drinking just like, uh, I would never take a beer because I don't like the, the taste. And and the year, year and a half after Stefan's death, like I was getting drunk at every race, like after every race, like I was just going to get drunk. And that was like uh, my, my way to, to, to handle it probably. So it took yeah a few years probably to to settle down and, and to understand okay to I don't think it's to take away the culpability because it's always there but it's just to yeah to to get with it yeah well kind of a form of of self destruction to sort of numb the pain or or the emotions that you were feeling at the time I imagine yeah exactly I think. Uh, in every moment of life, when we have a difficult situation, like we find a way to 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 handle it, and and it's uh, yeah, it's it's always bad decisions that we take, but it's it's the only way that we are able to 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 go through. I had a lot of conversations with coaches this past year, and the one I had in episode one thirty five with Diljeet Taylor, who's the associate director of cross country and track and field at BYU, really stood out to me. She told me about her emphasis on gratitude and why it's such an important part of the culture she's created at BYU, her mission of empowering women, and the importance of investing in people and not performances. We also talked about how she makes it work as a mom of two kids and a full-time Division I coach, the self-check that she does every day, balancing confidence and humility, and a lot more. I want to sound humble. I mean, I want it to come across like I am a very humble person and very grateful, um, but it, I'm intimidated when your women are ready to line up at the NCAA championships and you're like, whoa, we're trying to do some pretty crazy things right now. Um, but not really. I, I get nervous. The better I think we can do, the more nervous I am. My athletes know that. But I also I also like to be really confident. And so, no, I, I think intimidation probably wouldn't be the right word. Nervous, yes maybe a little scared. Yeah. But I think the confidence tries to, it overtakes any form of intimidation that I might feel. And, you know, your athletes feel what you feel. Yep. And if they feel that I'm nervous, great. Cause they know I've told them if I'm nervous, that means we're about to do something. The potential is there to do something really magical. Um, but I'm also super confident and I think that gives my women confidence when they look over and they see me at a track meet like, okay, she's, she's feeling confident. It's good. Um, 
but not intimidated. I, I, and my women aren't intimidated. That's the crazy part, right? All of a sudden we get here year one, two, three, four, and these BYU women are just, they don't care who they're lining up against. And it's great. I, that's, that is probably the best thing I've done in the four years is I have put women on the line that do not care who they're lining up against. They just want to beat you. And that, that's great. I, I had a college coach, a male coach actually at Stanford invite a couple years ago during outdoor season asked me what the secret was to coaching women. And I was like, huh? It's like, yeah, your women are just doing so well. Like, what's the secret? I was like, oh, well, you just have to, you just have to be strong. You have to create really strong women. And his reply was, so do you guys lift really heavy in the off season in the summer or are you lifting heavy in the season? I was like, no, 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 dude. Like he didn't get it <laughs> strong on the inside. Side, and yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny because I was like, really? Um, but that really is it. And I, I think out of all the accomplishments and all the great things that have happened in the last four years, the biggest for me, the greatest thing is the amount of confidence these women walk around with, the amount of confidence they race with, because that is the amount of confidence they're going to take out into the world and they're now going to have that no one can take away from them. Um, and, and that's been really exciting to watch that develop and help build that and then watch it come to fruition in, in these races. And yeah, that's probably my proudest thing that I have done here at BYU. I recorded episode 139 with Knox Robinson back in late July, but it was one that I just put out in the past few weeks. It was an uncomfortable conversation at times, but it helped to expand my perspective on topics such as running while black, race in America, and the role of the media in all of that. We also got into Knox's roots and his background as a runner and a storyteller, his writing practice and what that looks like, the idea of running as a sort of leveling agent, and a lot more. For me, I've been working on ideas to just understand them more deeply. I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I've been working on this idea since 2017, since July of 2017, when I was wondering if my attraction to running as a kid was seeing my name in the paper after a big meet or a dual meet with, with, with my time next to my name. I don't really care about PRs, and I knew I wasn't really proud of the PRs because the times weren't that great. You know, you and I both know that there's always somebody around the corner who's faster than you. So it wasn't about that. But I, I started to wonder decades later if running for me was the first time that I had ever had facts ascribed to my name. And I wonder if being lied about and, you know, called racial epithets from a young age and to know from age four or five that I'm living in a society that speaks of you in a way that you know is not accurate and you know that not who yourself to be. Um, and so for an entire lifetime of people lying to you and lying about you, saying you did something that you didn't do, saying that you were someplace that you weren't, somebody saying or assuming you would do something or had done something that had never even entered your mind, 
I think running and getting times for the first time for me as a teenager was the first time that I ever had experience with facts. You know what I mean? Like you can't lie about your time. You can't lie about your race. It's there in the newspaper, in the, in the small sec, <laughs> in the, in the results section. And I think that that experience was so intoxicating to me that like, you could call me whatever you want and you could say all these racist stereotypes about black people you want, but you can't never say that Knox Robinson didn't run 941 on a Tuesday night. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in, in a lot of ways for you, it almost kind of leveled things in a way. Yeah. And it doesn't absolve you from, from any malfans or like doing wrong things and it doesn't make you a better person either. Um, but that that's true of facts in general, right? Facts are just facts. Facts aren't necessarily good or bad. Facts just are literal records of a moment in time. And I think for, for the Black American experience is probably characterized by, um, as again, Didion would say in that essay, like the shifting phantasmagoria that defines our lives, you know? Um, so I think that, yeah, running those times and seeing my name in the paper was validating in some some way. Right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Last two things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to, and you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.